Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Decision Hour. I'm your host, Adam Bird. This show is about philanthropy, entrepreneurship, positive thinking, and humanity, a show that will help you make that decision when that hour is upon you. Our guests share some of their experience, expertise, and their stories during their decision hour. You get to hear what they're doing today and how it might help you here in the near future. My guest today is no different, and I'm going to bring him on uh, here in just a minute. This guy's doing some fantastic things in the community. I'm really excited about bringing him on here. But first off, I want to give a huge thanks to Heroes Media Group and all the great shows and sponsors of the network. To learn more about Heroes Media Group or how you can become a part of the HMG family, simply go to www.heroesmediagroup.com. Now, without further ado, this has been... I would say probably a year and a half in the making, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I got the the founder of Coda Longboards, Mr. Michael Maloney. Michael, how you doing? I'm doing well, Adam. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Hey, I appreciate you taking it. I mean, this is like I said, this has been uh, a, a a long time in the making, and uh, I'm just happy to have you on, man. And, and thanks for taking time out of your clearly busy schedule uh, to come on and talk to us today. Hey, no worries. I've, I've been waiting for this one to happen for quite a while, too, so I'm really glad we were finally able to connect. Absolutely. So let's jump right into this. Mike, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, professionally, uh, you know, I graduated from college with an engineering degree uh, back in an economy that's very similar to today. It was 1986. Uh, and, you know, you got out of college with an engineering degree, you couldn't get a job. And... Uh, so I ended up getting very lucky, went in the Navy, and I was able to fly F-14s in the Navy, um, had a wonderful career flying F-14s, lucky enough to be selected to go to Top Gun, uh, so I am a Top Gun grad. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess the characteristic, characterization of my career that I would uh, use would be that, you know, I've always excelled at everything I've ever done, but right when I get to an opportunity where I'm about to ring the bell, someone reaches up and takes it all away from you. And so, uh, you know, in the Navy, I was rushing the blue angels. I was looking at test pilot school, space program, you know, I had just about every option in front of me. And uh, one of our pilots ended up getting killed and, uh, without really thinking about it, I mean, I was just trying to hold myself to my code of holding ourselves to a higher standard. And, uh, was privy to some things going on in my squadron and wound up being a whistleblower, which unfortunately is the characterization of our society and uh, where we have been and where we are right now. It's uh, that's a career ender. <laughs> and so, you know, I was thinking that I was going to move from F-14s to F-18s and, you know, be doing something fascinating like uh, test pilot you know, space program, blue angel, something like that. And all of a sudden you're out on the street. So I thought, well, okay. You know, that was odd. I didn't expect that to happen. Uh, but you know what, when I think about it, I can go anywhere I want to go and I can do anything I want to do. I just really don't want to be an airline pilot. So, uh, I thought about where I wanted to go. I grew up in Colorado, uh, but had been stationed out in Miramar, uh, spent a lot of time in San Diego but I thought, you know, I just love Colorado and I want to go back to a mountain community. So I came back to Denver, ended up getting an MS in finance at uh, the University of Denver and uh, had just met my 
future wife. I was so poor, I think I had about 3,000 bucks to my name and it was probably a student loan. And I walked to the mailbox and there's a letter from United Airlines. I'm thinking, wow, you want to pay me how much money to go fly an airplane? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I actually started my own financial services company while I was in graduate school. And I thought, you know, what I could really do at United is I could be a pilot instructor at the training center in Denver and I could continue to finish out my graduate degree and uh, work on establishing my financial services company and continue to do all that stuff. And that's what I did. I went to United, uh, flew the line for a while, came into the training center as a pilot instructor. And then in 2001, uh, early in the year, I uh, ended up taking my captain bid and um, you have to get 500 hours as a captain to come back into the training center as an FAA check airman, what they call a standards captain. And that's a phenomenal job, best job in the airline industry, in my opinion. You know, you are making a lot of money. You're flying kind of on your own terms. You're training people, which I've been an instructor in everything I've ever done my entire career. And uh, it was really just an enjoyable job. And then this little thing happened on September 11th. And uh, I was actually six o'clock in the morning, Pacific time. I was on the runway uh, in Santa Barbara, cleared for takeoff. They just run up the throttles to full power and release the brakes. And cars started screaming at me to abort our takeoff. The only time I've ever actually aborted a takeoff in my entire career. And, uh, you know, what happened after September 11th, you know, I was probably, I don't know, eight, 10 weeks away from becoming a standards captain on September 10th. Well, by September 12th, poof, all of that blew away. And, uh, you know, we lost everything in United Airlines. United went into bankruptcy. Our huge retirement defaulted in a bankruptcy. I got a check for $1,200, you know. And uh, I got bumped out of my captain bid. Got, essentially went all the way down to the co-pilot of the same airplane I had been the captain of. I think last year at United Airlines, I was there. I made the same amount of money as I'd made as a lieutenant in the Navy 10 years earlier. Wow. And people don't really realize that, but you know, the United pilots, that whole crew, it was devastating. And so, you know, I said to my wife, I had a, a one-year-old at home and, uh, you know, I came in off a trip and I just said, you know, I'm going to quit and testament to the quality of my wife. First words out of her mouth were, all right, what do you want to do next? And so I got very lucky. Um, uh, talk about reinventing yourself. Um, I, uh, there's a company called CH2M Hill, which is, a it's like Bechtel or Black and Beach, Parsons, Brinkerhoff. It's a huge multi-billion dollar global environmental engineering firm. And my wife had worked for the CEO who was an iconic visionary leader. And, uh, you know, I told her, Hey, I just need to start networking. And this guy's like one of the most senior guys I know in business. So I'm just going to email him. I've heard they're doing some things after September 11th with uh, Homeland Security and infrastructure. And I thought you look at everything on my resume, engineering degree, active duty, military, I did a stint in Naval Intelligence and the Reserves. And I look at everything on my resume, MS and finance, except for being an airline pilot. You know, I'm actually perfectly suited to help them start up a business unit in something like that. So I emailed him 
And I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about leaving the airline and heard about some things you guys are doing. I think I'd be helpful. And, you know, what do you think? And, uh, you know, I thought, oh, I'll wait the obligatory, you know, 10 days and I'll ping him again or whatever. And the next morning I went down to my computer. There's an email from him. He's like, Mike, I think that's a great idea. I've already passed on your letter and your resume to a bunch of our senior executives. Said I'm leaving town for about six weeks, but when I get back, let's get together and talk. And believe it or not, it took me two and a half years to get the job, but had nothing to do with Homeland Defense or infrastructure security. But when we were starting to talk, he said, look, uh, we've decided that we need a new profit center. And the only profit center that I can think of that we haven't already exploited, I don't mean that term in a negative way, but um, was to somehow try and monetize our technology. And so I came in and I essentially ran a black op for the board of directors. I reported to the vice chairman um, and my job was to figure out a way to monetize the technology in this giant uh, you know, engineering firm. And uh, that was huge. I mean, I, I went uh, into CH2M Hill. Um, I was given a 15-year timetable, five years to organize the pipeline of technology, five years to initially populate the portfolio, five years for those first deals to mature to exit. And then after that, the expectation on the portfolio was that I would generate a mere $45 million in after-tax profit annually. <laughs> like, well, I would have been more comfortable with like $10 million, but I just need a bigger portfolio, I guess. So, But we were so far ahead of schedule. Um, by year two, we were already doing equity deals. So my job was essentially to find the technology in the firm, understand how to secure the intellectual property for it, or formalize the intellectual property, advance that technology to a nearly commercialized or commercialized state, leveraging client projects, wrap an operating company around it, find a management team, externally finance with venture capital, put management in place, come back in, do it again. Uh, and so that's what I did. I mean, out of the cockpit of an Airbus for crying out loud, I'm, I'm in this job. And uh, I thought, wow, you know, that worked out better than I could have imagined. And uh, here we go. We're back on track. It's going to take a while to recover our lost wealth from United, but um, we're back on track. And uh, we were humming along. Um, I was way under the radar by design, mm -hmm. the CEO, who was also chairman of the board. And uh, uh, I reported to a new vice chairman, which this is important to somehow longboard skateboards, by the way. But um, I started reporting to a new vice chairman in early 2008, and I had a deal in play. Um, I'd already selected a management team, and we had an investment banker that was helping us find uh, capital for the, the Series A that we were trying to capitalize the company with. And um, I... The new vice chairman, a guy named Don, he uh, he knew who I was, but he really had no idea what I did. And I'll never forget uh, January 2nd of 2008. I'm in his office for the first time, and we talked for about two hours. And he just looked at me and shook his head. He goes, I, I heard we were trying to do something like this, but I had no idea that you had moved this far with it. And I'm from the old days when we used to make money hand over fist on our technology. And uh, I love this. So what, what do you need? 
I'm, I'm in, I'm fully in, what do you need? And I said, well, look, I have a deal in play, but you know, it's really time to take you to graduate school here. Right. Um, number one, I'm out there raising millions of dollars in capital. I'm out there hiring investment bankers. I'm doing all this stuff by mandate from the vice the chairman and the vice chairman. But the chief legal counsel and CFO of the company are getting increasingly apoplectic about my activities. And all I can do is look at them saying, look, you know, I'm open and honest with you about everything that I do, but if you don't like me hiring an investment banker or something like that, I don't, you know, look, I don't report to you. Report to the board of directors. And so you're going to have to go talk to the CEO about that. And I, I knew that that was not an answer they were going to like, but it was the truth. <laughs> so I said to the vice chairman, I said, look, you know, I'm getting increasing hostility from the chief legal counsel and the CFO of this company. We wanted this to fly into the radar for a reason, which is too esoteric to even discuss more. But there was a, a systemic reason why they wanted this to be under the radar. And, uh, but that, that had been relieved because we proved that we could do it and we could do it legally. And uh, it had to do with the amount of their federal revenue versus non-federal revenue. And being able to bring proprietary technology to a project with the U.S. federal government, which says, you know, if you're a consulting engineer, I demand impartiality. And if you bring a, a proprietary technology to the project, you can't be impartial. But their dollar amount of federal revenue increased, but it declined from, you know, 70% of their revenue when they were doing Superfund site cleanup down to below 30% of the revenue. So systemically, they were relieved of this conflict of interest issue with the U.S. federal government. So that's why he wanted me to fly under the radar, because he, the CEO, when I got hired, said, you know, like 26,000 of the 27,000 people in this firm think what I'm about to have you do is illegal. And I'm like, oh, great. Could you have told me that before I quit United? <laughs> but no, I mean, that's I. Am I, I, am I your it. fall and, guy? Is that what so, you're setting me up for? What's a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so, you know, fast forward then to 2008. And, uh, you know, I, I told the vice chairman, I said, okay, so because of this, I said, look, I'm going to close this deal I have in play. But when I come back in, I'm, before I do any more deals, we need to do three things. Number one, we need to roll my office out into a wholly owned subsidiary of the company. So I have clean jurisdictional control over everything that I'm doing. Um, it's time to bring this thing to the light of day. Uh, so we had a plan for that. It was very sophisticated, but it was very elegant. Um, uh, then I said, the second thing is, look, we're a multinational. We need to, we, we have all sorts of international operations. We need to offshore this thing because we do have a portion of our portfolio that is going to start to generate material amounts of uh, license and royalty income. And you can, you know, the Canadians, Ireland, Switzerland, and the Netherlands, you pay no income tax on royalty or license revenue. It's a little known secret, oh, yeah. but, you know, you buy a Microsoft or an Apple product. Yep. 90% of that revenue goes to a holding company, Dublin, Ireland, typically, and they don't pay any income tax on that at all. And, you know, I have no problem with that because guess what? It's legal. And, uh, Smart business. you know, I, I looked at, 
Yeah, it's like, look, I would be derelict in my responsibilities to the shareholders of this company if I voluntarily paid the U.S. government 38 cents on a dollar when there was a free alternative. So I have no problem doing it whatsoever. Hey, uh, Donald Trump, if you want that to change, eliminate the income tax on that kind of income and you will repatriate trillions of dollars that are offshored by U.S. companies. And I think he's smart enough to start doing that. So, uh, you know, but we were going to offshore it. And then the third thing is, said, look, every time I roll one of these deals out, I take capital risk in the marketplace. It's 2008. The market stinks. And so at, at best, I'm leaving too much equity on the table. At worst, I can't fund the deal. So let's go out because we're a $6 billion Goliath in this industry. Let's go out and raise a three to $500 million strategic fund so that I have ready access. And so it's really a pretty cool plan. He's like, okay, look, I'm going to take that to the chairman of the board and see if, if he approves it, then we'll go do it. So uh, that all got approved and we were marching on our way. And, um, you know, so everybody's crying in their soup in 2008. And I'm thinking, hey, man, I'm going to close this deal and I'm going to be running a $300 million strategic fund out of the Cayman Islands. Like I'm, I'm we're in great shape. Right. Well, once again, right on the precipice, and all of a sudden, the CEO says, "Well, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to retire in the fall, and I'm going to remain chairman of the board." And uh, my vice chairman was in the running to become the CEO. Well, what ended up happening was he didn't get that job. The new CEO turns around and says, "Hey, I don't like having my rival in the company. Thanks for your 30 years. You're fired." And then he turned around and went to the board of directors and said, hey, the sky is falling. The economy's collapsing. We need to radically turn this company in a more conservative direction. And uh, they threw the chairman off the board. <laughs> and so I'm looking around going, hey, where'd, uh, where'd everybody go? And Jeez. so I got the inevitable call because uh, then, of course, I had lost my benefactor and my protector. So the chief legal counsel and I, uh, the CFO pounced and I get the call from the new CEO, you know, Hey, look, I don't, I don't, I've never done technology. It sounds risky to me. I don't like risk. Um, we're going to shut down the whole portfolio. And if you can close that deal, you've got in play. I want you to stay as the CEO of the company and, uh, you know, role as the CEO of that company to protect our equity interest. I literally said to him, I said, gee, do you, on the phone, you don't want to walk the 40 feet between your office and my office and explain to you why I do what I do and what it means for this company before you make that decision. No. <laughs> I'm going, uh, holy cow. Are you kidding? This is, it is the 21st century, you know? Right. So anyway, I mean, they shut down the portfolio and I did close that deal. I closed, uh, a multi-million dollar series a in june of 2009 we were probably one of only a dozen equity deals to be done nationwide that entire year it was horrible and i did roll out as the ceo of this clean energy company um it was more or less a chemical company mm -hmm. so i went to the former vice chairman who was now no longer an employee of ch2m hill and i said look you know you and I more or less founded this company internally. There are probably only 25 experts in this business in the entire world. And you and I are two of them. And so I need an independent director. You're on my board. So I brought him in on the board 
and it was hard. We had two venture capital firms that had funded the deal. Um, we worked heavily with CH2M Hill because as per the design of the portfolio, they were our channel to market. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so it was hard. We had some failures. We regrouped, we retooled the product and went out and in early 2011, we had an absolute grand slam in the marketplace. We had a powder material that scrubbed mercury emissions from coal flue gas, which I can already tell that you are just fascinated by this topic. (laughs) (laughs) That's a joke, right? (laughs) And, uh, you know, but I can talk for hours about mercury removal from coal flue gas, but, uh, you know, we went out and we had an absolute grand slam in the marketplace, 95% mercury removal every second of every day for a 90 day trial at full scale with one of the most influential utilities in America. And uh, my next meeting, which was already scheduled with that utility was to get them. I, I was in a position to make them a sweetheart deal and get them to be our first paying client and early adopter of the technology, which if you've ever done something like this before, that is absolutely critical to get that first paying early adopter. And, uh, it was a lot uglier, a lot more dishonest, a lot longer and drawn out than this. But I paraphrase by saying that I walk in the boardroom and the venture capitalists say, hey, thanks for teeing us up. We got a new CEO. See you later. And, and so then, here and I this, am. And this was back in, two, you, you said this was 2011, this time frame, right? So 2011, I'm okay. 49 years old and I'm unemployed, having been the CEO of a company. And I quickly realized I am virtually unemployable. Uh, I don't have to be the CEO of a job. We can talk about that if you know what I think the CEO of a, of a company uh, really means. But I don't need to be the CEO of a company. I, I would gladly take something else in an operational role. Mm-hmm. But everybody I talked to was like, geez, when the economy turns around, you're going to get offered all sorts of jobs and you're going to be out of here. We're not going to make an investment in you. And I'm like, oh my God, I just want a job. I just want to work. And, uh, you know, I was in these C-level networking groups, the ranks of which here in Denver were swelling to some 300 people. Right. And one by one, I'm watching these very talented people, very successful in their careers. And none of us could afford to retire. We weren't of that age. Um, one by one, I'm watching these guys flip into divorce, foreclosure, personal bankruptcy. And I went to my wife and I said, you know what? There are two things that are happening here. Number one, we all are stuck in this paradigm that we're going to get back the job we just lost. Right. Well, look at this crowd of people. Those jobs don't exist anymore. And when they come back, they're going to come back at a third of the comp level. I could be close to 60. Nobody's going to hire me at that age, having sat on the sidelines for 10 years. And so the second thing that's happening is every dollar that leaves their checking account, they're becoming more and more risk averse. I said, as hard as this is going to be for us, every dollar that leaves our checking account, we better become more risk tolerant because we damn well better take the risk what we can afford to. Instead of me power networking my way into nothingness for three or four years and then saying, hey, maybe we ought to start a company and we're out of money. Right. And so... I, for a while, I said, I've got to start a company. What do people pay me to do now? They pay me to start companies. Okay. And so I need to start a company. Um, for a while there, I was, oh, by the way, the other company ended up throwing Don off of their board. 
Of course. And so I was working with Don to, yeah, of course. Um, I was working with Don to uh, try and purchase some technology out of CH2M Hill because, hey, they shut down the portfolio. I'm the only person that knows where it all is over there. And there's some incredibly valuable technology sitting on the shelves collecting dust. And we could have done that. They would have sold it to us and we could have bought it for a very reasonable price. But I would have needed 30 to $50 million to get any of it to market. And in 2011, there was no market no. Um, God, for that kind of money investment. Jeez. So, uh, you know, I said, I got to look into a different market. And uh, <laughs> the funny thing is, is I called up, Don and I said, Don, I started a company and I really, really, really need you to invest in it. And you're like, what are we doing? Upstream natural gas, modern nuclear reactors, what are we doing? I'm like, uh, longboard skateboards done. <laughs> <laughs> to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. Just just to, oh I can hear you like the voice. Listen, folks, if you're listening Our, to if you're if you're listening to this interview right now, it means you're already online. And, and what Michael's talking about right now is his company that he owns right now, which is, is Coda Longboards, and it's a longboard skateboard company. And if you have not heard of this, you, you open up another browser right now. Go to www.codalongboards, all one word, .com, and you got to check these out. These things are sick. They're, 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 they're freaking <laughs> awesome. Go on, Mike, please. Well, so Don just says to me, he's like, just shakes his head. And he's like, look, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I know exactly what you're capable of doing. So I'm in. And uh, so it's fun to be working with Don again. I love the man. And he's been a, he's been a mentor. He's been uh, a confidant and a colleague uh, for a long time now. And I, I just always have to mention that because I just, I, I love the man and I, I love his faith in me. But, you know, I mean, I really got, you want to talk about a decision hour, uh, I got to a point where I was not in a very good place mentally, emotionally in 2011 and 2012. Right. And it was, it was a very foreign place for a fighter pilot, but a feeling of desperation and helplessness. And uh, so I finally had a big moment of reflection. And I said, look, this is one of those times in your life where you can sit there and look back at your career and say, you know what, I've done everything I could right. I've held myself to a high standard. I've been honest. I've been trustworthy. And yet somebody has screwed me every time I get right up to the, to the, the, the brink of success. Well, I can either sit here and wallow in that and victimize myself or I can just say, you know, uh, apparently this is God just beating me over the head saying, you idiot, you have, you just need to do this for yourself. And so I'm like, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not, I, I don't like being a victim. I don't like how it feels. I don't like dealing with people who have victimized themselves. I don't, to me, there's nothing but destructive behavior and mentality behind all of that. Right. And so, you know what? I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to pick a direction and I'm going that away. And, uh, so uh, <laughs> to backtrack back to the boardroom of my prior company, there was one board meeting that I remember, I can't remember what they were talking about, but you know, the investors were all panic stricken about something. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I actually kind of got pissed off in a board meeting 
And I'm sure I said it in a more polite manner than I'm about to say now, but I said, look, I said, look, gentlemen, nobody ever taught me how not to get to the target. Nobody ever said, Mike, you launch off the pointy end of this ship. And if you don't make the target, come on back. We'll cook you a nice warm meal and tuck you into bed. You know, we were supposed to go out there and accomplish the mission or maybe think about not bringing the jet back. Right. was basically our mentality. Right. And so sit down, calm down and let me do the job that I was hired to do. Um, and that really is, is the approach that I took with this company. But I, I, it was like, look, I, I know this is hard. I, I sat my wife down in 2012 when we started this company and I said, you know, if we decide to do this, this is going to be the hardest thing that we have ever done in our lives. Oh my God, was that an understatement like nobody's business. Uh, starting a company, especially in manufacturing of a retail product, uh, is, is, it's not impossible, but it's close. And, uh, you know, it is just a daily, I describe it as hand-to-hand combat on a daily basis. And that's exactly what it feels like. And there's no rest. You don't get the, hey, you know what, can we just get a bunch of money in here and we can all sleep for a week and then we're right back in the fight? No. It never happens. You just have to keep getting it out day after day, hour after hour. And the emotional highs and lows are so dramatic, even on a daily basis. And so, you know, we, we started going down this path knowing that it was going to be difficult, but completely naive as to how difficult that, you know, that was really going to be. But that's what we did. Uh, but I said, uh, I said, look, if I'm going to start a company, though, I, I am just I. I'm not bitter necessarily, but I am just so disenchanted with the behavior that I've seen of people who will not take accountability for their actions and their mistakes, you know, Navy, right. uh, to, for people that, you know, are in a risk business, but then get risk averse and they start making, you know, I, I describe it to you this way. If you have a propensity to take the worst possible case scenario, elevate that to a 100% probability, and then make all of your business decisions around that mentality, you will make one flawed business decision after another. Mm -hmm. Well, I saw that in my career too. And then just the, just the despicable behavior that I experienced in the boardroom at my last company. And I said, you know what, if I'm going to start a company, then damn it, it's going to stand for holding ourselves to a higher standard. It's going to stand for the values that I feel we need to re-elevate in, uh, in our uh, business dialogue. And so I started CODA. CODA stands for Knights of the Air. Uh, Knights of the Air was the moniker that was given to the earliest fighter pilots back in World War I, 100 years ago. Uh, because, you know, what people don't really associate is that in 1914, when the war started, the airplane was only 11 years old. You know, the Wright brothers flew the first powered flight in 1903. So the Europeans are looking at this contraption saying, what in the hell are we going to do with this thing? And who are we going to get to fly it? Well, they generally picked officers from the Cavalry Corps um, and they became the world's first fighter pilots on all sides of the conflict. Well, at the time in European armies, officers in the Cavalry Corps could literally trace their lineage back to the medieval knights. There was a French magazine in in uh, 1914 that did an expose on a French ace and they could trace his lineage back to, I don't know, Joan of Arc or somebody. And uh, they dubbed him a knight of the air. And that moniker then spread and stuck 
to all pilots on all sides of the conflict. But these guys literally lived by the chivalric code from medieval times. So it was a code of honor, integrity, courage, esprit de corps, even amongst adversaries. Yeah. That in my in my opinion was still the defining culture of fighter aviation, flying F 14s in the United States Navy. And uh, so I thought, you know what? This is where I have an opportunity to start a company that actually stands. I could have called this thing Maloney Longboards and nobody would have cared. Uh, but instead, CODA now, Knights of the Air, everything that that stands for, the, the quality of the product, the performance of the product, but it's all there, holding ourselves to a higher standard in all that we do, how we interact with our vendors, how we interact with our business partners, how we interact with our clients, how we interact with our employees. Um, everything is... We demand of ourselves holding ourselves to a higher standard in all of those things. And yet our clientele, which is much older than the skateboard demographic, by the way, by, by design, um, our demographic is broadly the young professional, late 20s, early 30s, all the way to the retiree in their 70s. Some of those people on the older end of their range hang them on the wall as artwork. Some of them go out and ride them, and they send us photos and video of them riding them. Uh, part of our market is age 35 to 55, 40% women. Now, that's so far outside of the, the longboard skateboard demographic. Really? It's officially stated. It, oh, yeah. It's age 9 to 24, 93% male. That's Surf Industry Manufacturing Association demographic numbers for longboard skateboards. We're not even in that demographic. We'll sell into that demographic if they have an appeal and have the money to buy our brand. But that's we're we're so far outside of that demographic in the heart of our market that, you know, we we're completely different when it comes to a company involved in skate. So so Mike, let but me what add, our clientele. Let, let me let me ask you this because we're coming up on uh, on time here, and I want to make sure I get this. You're, you're talking about you you told us about the the one decision that that, that hour that came upon you. Finding Coda Longboards and Knights of of the Air, which is freaking awesome. I did not know that. That that is uh, <laughs> that, that gives me goosebumps thinking of, that is freaking cool. First off, so when did you start? When when was when you made that decision? All right, I'm starting this business. I'm going to name it Coda Longboards. Tell us what. Tell the listeners what you were feeling at that moment, and and that decision that. You know, did you talk to your wife? Hey, this is what I'm. This is what we're gonna do. We're all in it. This is this is how it's going, uh, and, and we're starting it. it, it play, and, and then and then the second part of that is, how did you choose longboards? Oh well, they're wrapped in in the same answer. So I'll, I'll tell you that I don't really, it's, it, I don't really tell people this much. It's a little metaphysical, if you will, but it's the truth. Um, so. I live by the University of Denver, and there used to be this phenomenal Irish pub right on the corner looking at the university grounds. And uh, I was actually at that pub waiting for a networking meeting to start, and everybody was late. I was there all alone, drinking a beer, feeling really sorry for myself. And about uh, it's probably March or April of 2012. And... Um, I'm looking out the window and I see these giant co-eds go by on longboard skateboards and I'm looking at them. And the thing that I noticed initially was that when these six foot four co-eds got on these boards, they sagged and almost hit the ground. 
And like, you know, somewhere in my past, I have a mechanical engineering degree. And from an engineering point of view, that just bugs me. Why is nobody cambering these boards? <laughs> yeah, right. And I've watched them and I'm just like, God, I, I really have a problem with that because camber is such a simple engineering mechanism, but it really bugs the crap out of me looking at these boards and they're almost sagging and dragging on the ground. And so I'm like, hey, mental note, you ever decide to make a longboard skateboard, put camber in it. And then I sat there long enough, feeling sorry enough for myself. I thought, you know, I need to shake up my life. Maybe I ought to just buy one of those things. And I never really skateboarded as a kid. I could never really afford a skateboard. I remember when the Hobie skateboard came out with urethane wheels. Oh, my God, all my friends had them. And I couldn't afford one. I was so envious. So I never was really a skater. Um, I used to skate on their boards just whenever I was at their houses, but I was never really a skater. So it wasn't something rich from my past. But I said, you know, maybe I should just get one and just start doing something different. But then I thought what everybody else thinks. God, if I got on that thing, I would immediately, I would kill myself. <laughs> and so I sat there long enough, though, because everybody was so late watching these guys. I don't, why do I say that? I mean, I do all sorts of dangerous things at my age. We ski, we tear ACLs, I, we mountain bike, we break collarbones. I've laid down my road bike a couple times. I put on coat and tie over severe road rash before. So let me flip that around. Why wouldn't I get on that thing? And it really came down to two things. Number one, I have nothing in common with the skateboard culture. There's nothing there culturally or stylistically that appeals to me. Well, I can fix that with our brand and our styling. But number two, I get it. I don't have a break. I don't want to get on something that I think, uh, you know, there's a fait accompli. I'm going to hurt myself. But I went back to camber. I said, camber is the mechanism in a high-performance downhill ski that allows me to control my energy and, and carve edge to edge. And I got to figure that it probably works the same way in a longboard. And, in fact, it does. So, but that wasn't enough. I mean, I still wasn't convinced. I finally met with these folks and I was still trying to go out and find some sort of director or VP or C-level job. And uh, it was a couple weeks later, and uh, this is the kind of weird part, um, but I was on the playground. I had little kids at the time. I was on the playground of our local middle school or our grade school and talking to a friend of mine who is just, he's a surfer from Santa Barbara. The guy is just the coolest cat in the neighborhood. Now he is our photographer and he is phenomenal, um, Rob. And uh, I was talking to Rob. Rob has two sons. They're the same age as my kids. And our kids were playing together on the playground. It was just, a, you know, an off weekend. And, you know, he was one of those few people, by the way, that, was saying, Hey man, I've been thinking about you and your family. I know this is tough for you. How you doing? Do you have any prospects? We're, we're thinking of you. And I mean, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that kind of thing. And, and, uh, it really is meaningful when you're in a place that's not so good. And, uh, oh, absolutely. you know, uh, I, I said to him, I said, so, uh, what did you do this weekend? He said, Hey, I made a couple longboard skateboards for my kids. And I swear to God, Adam, it was as if a bolt of lightning hit me. And he, he remembers it. We still talk about it to this day. And I mean, I saw the name of the company. I saw the logo of the company. I saw the style of the boards. I saw everything. It was like laying out on a road in front of me visually. And it was just bizarre. I don't think that has ever happened to me any time in my life. 
And I was just like, okay, that was really flipping weird. And uh, it was kind of one of those things where it's like, well, you know, if I ignore that, maybe it'll go away. And it just kept coming back and coming back. And, you know, in the, my stressful, sleepless nights, I'd be bolt upright in bed in the middle of the night, panicked about, you know, where are we going to get the money to survive this thing? And, and uh, this longboard skateboard vision would come. Bolting. So finally, I dragged myself out of bed and I went down to my computer and said, I, I can't sleep. I might as well start researching this market. And all of a sudden, I saw the opportunity. And I said, look, you know, there is an opportunity to move skate into an entirely new demographic, the action sports active lifestyle demographic. It's not necessarily that our technology is disruptive, although it is, and certainly I hate that word, but I think disruptive. I think it's so overused. But what's really, if we're going to use that word, what's disruptive, in my opinion, about our company is that we are pioneering an entirely new demographic for skate. But if you look, you know, I'm now 54, God, I'll be 55 this year. And, you know, I'm really the first generation that grew up with skateboards. It's not foreign to us. It's just we haven't thought about doing it for so long because of the two reasons that I thought, you know, and nothing in common with the culture. We've outgrown that. And understanding that I can actually be in control of this thing, the perception is I can't and I'm going to hurt myself. But we change all that around. And so... What was really cool is that my last company, being a chemical company, my CTO is a PhD chemist. And he and I, after I left, we've remained great friends even to this day. And uh, I called him up and I, I pulled him out of Wacker, which is a local uh, German lacquer and finish company. And, uh, you know, I called him up and I said, hey, I don't want to put grip tape on these things. So could you ever develop a clear... Actually, I didn't tell him what I was doing, but I, I said, could you create a clear, non-porous finish that would be grippy to create in rubber sole shoes and skin? He laughs. He says, well, that's like a mistake we make in the lab. What do you want that for? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't know. Uh, no, longboard skateboards. You're, you're doing what? You know, I mean, uh, and so, uh, you know, the end result is that we have the only non-porous, chemically grippy finish on a longboard skateboard, which means that we can now elevate the primary artwork to the Jeez. top of the board. The, and uh, so that then opened up an entirely new market for us, which is co-branding with other companies. I made boards last year for the Ferrari Owners Club. Yeah, uh, We make them for Subaru, Camelback, 511 Tactical. Uh, we just did a really cool board for Softly. Um, we, uh, hopefully the first of many, um, all the Vail resorts, Park City, Heavenly Valley, Kirkwood, North Star, Vail. Um, there's a hotel, Halcyon Hotel, part of Sage Hospitality that actually rents our boards to their guests here in Cherry Creek. Oh, wow. Very high-end hotel. Um, you know, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And then, you know, you and I were talking before we started, but we just signed last week a co-brand deal with uh, Budweiser and all of our license fee is a donation for a $20 donation for every board they buy to Folds of Honor Foundation. Oh, that's so huge. Huge this news. Is part of the giving back. I mean, it's just, it was co I, we coded it into the DNA of our brand from day one that we are going to give back to the community of those who serve. We have a saying in our brand book. It's actually, we have a brand book and it's written into our brand book. We have a saying that service 
means that at some point you have made the conscious decision to put someone else's best interests ahead of your own. Now think about what I just said in the context of America today. I have made the conscious decision to put your best interests ahead of my own. In military terms, that means that I will jump on that grenade to save you. I will pacify your province or your region or your country so that you can send your children to school in a peaceful environment, that you can have a peaceful meal. I will lay down my life for you, even if you're not from my country. I will lay down my life for you, even if we have different ideologies. That's, that's what service means to the service member. Uh, but you take that all the way down to the waiter in a restaurant. You know, you're not there just to get a big tip. You're there to serve others, the customer. Yep. Yeah. You were putting their best interest ahead of your own. That's a, that's a concept that we need to re-elevate in our dialogue in this country. Completely agree. Folks, if you're listening to this, you got to check these longboards out. These, the, the artwork and the, and just the technology, take a look at these things and it's got to, I'm assuming that that's you, Mike, on the video on the, on the website. Yeah, for now, I actually probably need to change that out. Yeah, I try and do that about every two months. The, but no, that's me. The, these, these, <laughs> they, took, they took video of the old white-haired guy riding. <laughs> these, these boards, folks, these long boards are absolutely beautiful. you got to check them out. Go to www.codalongboards.com. Again, that's Coda, K-O-T-A, longboards, all one word, dot com. And check this website out and get yours Get yours, order one today. You're already online. You're listening to this. Open up another browser. Go ahead and just, just go ahead. We'll order one right now. Got to. These things are awesome. Absolutely amazing. Mike, we're, we're coming up on the end here. I, I got one more question for you. For our mm-hmm. listeners, for, for those people out there that are, that are in a time uh, in their life where, where that hour is upon them, where they need to make a decision, uh, in, in their lives, that their decision hour is upon them. What advice do you have to give them? Well, I'm going to try and be very succinct and very quick. Look, it all comes down to, are you going to wallow in risk aversion or are you going to go out there and be bold? A risk aversion is the cancer on a free market economy. And we have been in a risk averse environment since September 11th, naturally because of the psychology of having a, a disaster like, you know, a, a a big blow to our confidence like September 11th and then an economic collapse and stagnation and all that. Are you going to wallow in that? Or are you going to go out there and say, you know what? I don't care what everybody else is doing. I'm going to do something extraordinary. Well, you know what? You can wait until tomorrow to do something extraordinary. or You can decide to do it right now. And that's really, I mean, circumstance forced me into that. I had nowhere else to go, but it was more than that. That fate um, hand of God, I, you know, I don't know what it was. They call it whatever you want. But that moment was thrust upon me. And I said, look, it's just not in my nature to sit here and feel sorry for myself. So stop doing that. I don't know where this is going to take me. But all I can tell you is that if I do nothing, I will be sitting here a year from now in the same exact place wondering what is, what am I going to do? You can't wait for some catalyst to come along and make your life better. You can't wait for some catalyst to come along or some event to occur that will all of a sudden make everything right in your life. 
There's only one way to do that, and that is to go out and put something in motion. It may not be the thing that you wind up being successful with, but put something in motion. I go back to CH2M Hill. My first day, they put my office about 15 feet outside the CEO's office. I was so scared. If I had butcher paper, I would have blacked out my window. I closed my door and I sat at my desk and I said, you know, I got to tell you, I, I have absolutely no idea what I'm supposed to be doing right now. But then the fighter pilot kicks in. It's like, you know what? I need to just get out of this office and go walk around and start talking to people. I just need to say, hey, you know, what technology do you have that you think is really cool in your business crew? You know, are you doing anything with it? Where do you see the economic opportunity? Uh, not even telling them what I did. It's just, let's go out and let's just poll people and let's see what happens. Well, all of a sudden, boom, we start, oh my God, somebody's finally paying attention to my technology. And it led to what we built at CH2M Hill. Same thing with this. It's like, you know, I, I could sit here and just, you know, hook an IV of Starbucks to my arm and power a network my way into oblivion. Or I can start putting something in motion. Longboard skateboards, I have no idea if this is going to turn into something or not. I don't know. But all I can tell you is if I put this in motion, something is going to present itself to me that makes sense. And indeed, longboard skateboards, who knew? I mean, now we have not only a longboard skateboard product and a company, but we have a brand. And all of our clientele tells us, you know what, I love the product because I feel empowered by your brand and your product because I never thought I would ever be doing this at my age. It makes me feel more youthful, uh, more adventurous, more of a risk taker, the way people perceive me. You skate? Yeah, I skate. Don't you? Nice. You know, it, it, it makes people look at me and feel the way I want them to feel about me. But they always tell us, but it's more than that said, I love everything about this brand, what it stands for, the authenticity behind the brand, the historical context of the brand. But I also, I also want to participate in the community outreach that you guys do. And, uh, you know, uh, could I have imagined that, that day in the park with Rob? I couldn't have imagined any of this. But you know what? We put it in motion and here we are today. Now we're still, we're not cash flowing, we're not profitable. We're still fighting the daily, how do I make payroll the next week kind of uh, entrepreneurial experience. But you know what? We're starting to turn a corner here and uh, awareness is growing. This show hopefully will help build awareness. Hopefully people will go out there and want to buy something from us and help us get to that cash flow point. And once we're there, well, I'll tell you what, we have a powerhouse on our hands. But I got to tell the listeners no one is it, it, a it's never going to be convenient it's never going to be easy it's never going to be a direct all of a sudden oh this makes sense i've got to do this it requires that first bold step you got to believe in yourself you got to believe in what you're doing and you've got to be willing to understand that i actually don't know where this is going to go but if i don't start something and i don't walk down that path the opportunity that really will be good for me will never appear. It will never, it, it will never surface. Very rarely does something just fall into your lap that is a perfect fit. No. You've got to go out and make it and, happen. And, and that, so my, my, I'll leave you with this. What are you waiting for? 
you know, I, 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 you look at this economy, this economy still is stagnating. It's horrible. But if, if people don't go out there and take some risk and be bold, if there's no cash that's flowing through the marketplace, then what do you expect? Well, I expect stagnation. And so we need to get people out there finally picking themselves up. Look, this whole country has had PTS since September 11th. But it's time for us to start remembering that we're Americans and we don't wallow in self-pity and fear. We generally kick ass with whatever we do. And so let's go back to those days. And, uh, you know, that's what our brand stands for, is helping people pull themselves up, understand their true potential, who they are, what they're capable of doing, and go out there and, hey, if, if the act of picking up longboarding at the age of 45 or 50 or 55 is what helps you, you know, buck up and, and feel courageous, then man, we've done everything that we can. We've done our job. Absolutely but, amazing. Yeah. And that's such, a, that's such a great message. You know, and, and what are you guys waiting for? And with that being said, yeah, since <laughs> since you're listening, since you're listening to the show again, open up another browser. Go to www.codalongboards.com. You, I'm telling you, you, Michael does not disappoint. You guys got to check this out. You you got to check this out. Um, Denver, so. we just moved our factory a few months ago. We've got this gorgeous showroom and retail space, the factory. Everybody in the factory, they're just such great people and come and see us. Uh, if you're in Denver, we just had somebody from out of town. who's one of our clients came in yesterday, straight out the airplane, came right from DIA to the factory, spent about three and a half hours with he and his wife and his two little daughters. Um, and it was just awesome. We, this happens every day to us and we love it. Uh, we don't call our clients clients. Well, I was telling them, look, you're, you're part of our family now, whether you want to be or not. I love it. It's that, all Dakota family. I love it. Love it. Michael, we appreciate you taking time uh, in, in, in telling our listeners about you, your journey, your decision hour, and Coda Longboards. We appreciate it. Now, Adam, thank you. Uh, as I said before, it's really an honor to be here, and you've got a fantastic show. And I do look forward to meeting you sometime in person, too. So oh. uh, let's make that happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, what a great interview. Uh, Michael Maloney from Coda Longboards. Coda, Knights of the Air. You got to check these longboards out, folks. Absolutely love this organization. And this is, I was so happy. I was finally able to uh, get together with them and have them on the show. Uh, and such a great story uh, and, and the meaning behind uh, the business. I am well out of time right now. Uh but I have to give a big special thanks to, again, to uh, Michael Maloney from Coda Longboards. Go to www.codalongboards.com. Check them out. Get your boards today. And uh, big thanks to Heroes Media Group. Again, to the sponsors, to the shows, make sure you go to www.heroesmediagroup.com. Support the sponsors. Support the shows on this network. They're doing fantastic things. And uh, if you want to become part of the HMG family, fill it out and just leave your information. Uh, we'll get that email and we'll reach out to you. So until next time, thank you for listening to The Decision Network.